Hey everybody, welcome to Therapy for Humans, the podcast where if you're not careful, you might just pick up some tips on how to survive as a more or less psychologically intact human in the modern world. My name is Rowan, and I'll be your host. So welcome to the post-Thanksgiving edition of Therapy for Humans. Hope you had a great time. I'm missing my daughter a little bit this time of year, my older daughter. She's away at college, and we usually do a lot of cooking together around this time of year. But uh, we went out to my in-laws for Thanksgiving, and they live in this really tiny, funky little town in the middle of the desert called Bluff. It's in the southeast corner of Utah, and it is amazing. It's a magical fucking wild place it can't be described if you haven't been there then you need to go and if you haven't been there then you have no idea what i'm talking about but if you have been there you know exactly what i'm talking about anyway wild environment and like a lot of little desert towns it attracts a pretty diverse group of folks and my in-laws uh have collected quite an amazing group of uh friends and uh, chosen family members out there, and uh, a lot of them were in attendance at our dinner. And, you know, there are a lot of things I appreciate about my in-laws, but one of the things I've always loved is that they really know how to, like, just get real. Um, so before dinner, we stood out around a fire pit outside and spoke to what we were thankful for. And this wasn't the usual, like, one or two word kind of jokey answers that you get around the table before everybody dives into their meal, but but for real, like what's important to you right now? What has made a difference for you this year? And on Thursday in this group, the answers ranged, you know, from the environment and a deep reverence for the earth and especially the rivers that those folks out there are so fond of and to more political messages to really personal reflections on partnership and the health of loved ones. So all in all, it's a pretty nice way to kick off a meal. Anyway, enough about me. How are you? I do hope you're sliding into the holidays on a more or less even keel. It can be a rough ride. Lots of expectations. Lots of lots of forced family gatherings, or at least gatherings that can feel forced. So on that note, I wanted to talk about boundaries, since it's the holidays and all. You may or may not be surprised by how much time I spend in session talking about boundaries. Usually I'm trying to get my clients to set better ones with others. Occasionally, though, I need to talk to them about how they might be impacting other people's boundaries with their behavior. The thing about boundaries is that they can be a little different for each person, which means it can be hard to know what's going to be uncomfortable for someone else. So we have these generally accepted social norms that do a pretty good job of helping us all feel pretty comfortable most of the time. But if your comfort zone lies in a different place than those norms, then the world can feel more stressful to you. Maybe the socially acceptable boundaries around touch, for instance, don't align with your own needs. Maybe a touch on the shoulder from a coworker that some people would find comforting or encouraging feels really invasive to you. And maybe if you're in tune enough uh, to know that that doesn't bother a lot of people, then you have to make a choice around calling that out and asking not to be touched and risk the misunderstanding that you might receive from that. Or you suck it up and deal with people touching you in ways that feel off to you. So my advice there? Tell them. Set your own fucking boundaries and know that you get to do that. Be gentle with the people with whom you haven't had that talk with yet. Recognize that they didn't know any better. But be firm with the people that you have talked to about this before. 
Your reaction to continue touching after that talk should ramp up in alignment with how many times you have had to tell them. You don't have to be an asshole about it, but you can be clear and stand firm. So while we're on the subject of this, which isn't really what I had planned to talk about today, don't insist that your young children hug relatives and friends that they don't want to hug. Yes, this can be awkward. It sucks when your little princess doesn't want to give grandma or uncle Pete a hug, but you have a huge opportunity here to teach them the level of physical contact they are comfortable with and that they get to set boundaries around that experience for them. And just because they're children and just because grandma wants a hug does not mean that your kid has to acquiesce to those wishes. For the rest of their life, especially if they are girls, they will be inundated with people who feel justified in touching them in ways that may feel uncomfortable to them. Teach them from a very young age that they get to decide. Teach your relatives that if they don't get a hug, it doesn't mean that the kid hates them. It means that kid wasn't feeling like that level of contact in that moment. Kids through go through different levels of developmental stages. And in those stages, they may feel more or less touchy. And respecting that is crucial to them feeling empowered around their bodies. It's hard as parents and relatives to have our physical overtures rebuffed by young kids. But it's part of the process of helping them grow into independent humans And if that's not your goal, then you shouldn't be parenting. When my kids were little, like three and five, something like that, we had some grandparent-like figures in their lives. They were old family friends. They ended up being related by marriage for a period of time. And there was this assumed intimacy from them towards my kids that my kids never felt. They never were comfortable with that. These people were basically strangers to my kids, even though I had a familiarity with them and Because of that, these people thought that our kids were like fair game for them. And they would get super pissed off if the girls didn't call them Grammy and Grampy, which we fucking never made them do and we got shit for regularly. And they always wanted hugs and my girls never were down for that. And it was just a much bigger deal than it needed to be because these people could not hear that they were not owed affection, no matter what kinds of gifts they would bring or how much they felt justified around it. And my wife and I caught a lot of shit for that. And you know what? We were right. And we did the right thing. And we do it again. It is your job to know where your child's comfort zones are and to make sure that it is respected by anyone who comes into contact with your child. If older relatives don't get that, then keep trying to get them to understand it. You can be kind and you can be patient, but you don't need to make your kids have to set those boundaries for themselves. Your job is to help them set them so that they don't have to handle it kind of out there all alone. So give them your help and your approval. Okay, so that's actually not what I was going to talk about either. (laughs) I wanted to talk about adult-to-adult boundaries and how to hold them this holiday season, but I think that was a worthwhile detour. Um, Okay, so let's talk about how to hold your ground without pissing people off. Just like with kids, adults get to decide how their interactions with others go. They don't always go the way we want them to, of course, and there will always be situations that we find ourselves in that do not unfold in direct alignment with our comfort zone. But this doesn't mean that we should just give up completely on our needs. The bottom line with boundaries is that you get to set them for yourself. They should be as open as they can be and still reside in a place that you can tolerate. If your boundaries are set too tight with too many restrictions on other people's behavior toward you, then a lot of people are going to find you too high maintenance, and that can make your life more miserable than it needs to be. 
On the other hand, if you don't set any boundaries and you always feel like others are doing or saying things that tip you over, then that also leads to a miserable time. So the key, key here is to pick your battles. If people are not treating you like an equal adult, if they are asking inappropriate questions that are none of their fucking business or saying things to you that make you uncomfortable, then that is a battle worth fighting. Okay, maybe that's a poor choice of words. Ideally, this is not a fight. It's a statement or a conversation. Do yourself a favor here, and this is important, so listen up. Do not try to set a boundary by making a joke. If you make light of a situation that makes you uncomfortable, then no one is going to take it seriously, and you don't get to be pissed off at them for not understanding how important something is to you if you try to communicate that important thing by laughing it off in some way to avoid a confrontation. I do this all the time, not as much as I used to. I used to do it a lot. I've gotten a lot better about actually like coming into a serious place when I need to set a boundary with someone rather than making some kind of a joke and just hoping that they figure it out. So don't do that. Be clear and be serious. It often helps to put out there that this may be new information and give some grace around that. You don't need to shame your 75-year-old relative for commenting on your relationship status if that's what they've always done in the past without being corrected. But you can let them know that this line of questioning makes you uncomfortable and then name that you've never told them this before so they might not have known until now. After you have said that clearly and seriously, then maybe you can lighten it up. Hey, Grandpa, I don't ask about your sex life. I'd really love it if you didn't ask about mine. Now let's go do a tequila shot. But before you get to the joke, make sure that they understand that you're serious about this, that it matters to you. Remember that you don't have to blast your loved ones for their behavior if you haven't been clear about it before. On the other hand, if this has been an issue for years and you've tried over and over again to let them know that this or that makes you uncomfortable, then it's okay to be more firm to state the ongoing nature of this, and to tell them if they persist, then they will have less and less contact with you. Decide beforehand what are your hard no's and what you can just chalk up to your relatives being annoying and deal with it for a short period of time. Inappropriate touching or anything that feels abusive to you should be hard no's. And if that causes a scene, then make sure that they are the ones that feel uncomfortable and not you. You get to decide how people interact with you, and if others blow through that line you set, it is they that need to feel ashamed or like they've done something wrong. Do not allow it to go the other way around. Okay, we had an email come in. Uh, they say, I'm the parent of a transgender kid, and they're almost 10, and they have been clear about their gender identity for two years. We are supportive of them, but I'm struggling with how to talk to an extended, to extended family members about this, and what do I do if they are not supportive? Okay. Well, thanks for your email. First of all, let's talk about trans stuff for a minute. Sometimes I'll get a call from a parent looking for therapy for their kid and they'll be like, Hey, my kid thinks they're transgender. Do you believe in that? Yes, I believe in that. I work with a lot of trans adults as well as youth. And I'm also the co-founder of the Four Corners Rainbow Youth Center, which is a safe space for queer kids uh, like my kid. And we have a shit ton of trans youth who come to the center. I also facilitate a group of parents, a group for parents of trans youth. So yes, being trans is a real thing. It occurs in about 1% of the population, which makes it a normal human variation. The scary and sad thing is this. 50% of all youth who identify as transgender will attempt suicide before their 24th birthdays. 50%. 
The good news is that that statistic drops to about 7% if the youth feel supported by any other adult in their lives. That could be you, so pay attention. It drops again to about 4.5%, which is the same as it is for straight and cisgender youth, if they feel supported by a family member. So, back to the email. I'm very glad that you're supporting your kid. It can literally make the difference between them trying to kill themselves and not trying to kill themselves. And I would let that statistic guide you on how you deal with your family. Your kid is trans. They, I'm guessing, are using different names and pronouns than the ones your extended family is used to using. That's really the extent of what you're asking these family members to do. Use the name and pronoun that your child is identifying with. They don't have to love it. They don't have to fully understand it. They don't have to approve of you as a parent. But they do need to respect your child's wishes in this. Or they need to have limited or no contact with your child. Some youth are in a massive battle with themselves. Some trans youth have a really hard time reconciling their bodies with how they perceive themselves, and this can lead to a host of issues ranging from general discomfort and mild depression to severe depression and anxiety, suicidal ideation, and self-harming or even self-mutilation. All of those things are generally referred to as dysphoria when we're talking about transgender people, which is the experience of feeling misaligned with your body and or gender. Every time someone, especially someone in the family, uses a name or pronoun that they do not identify with, it can ramp up their symptoms of dysphoria. Your job is to protect them from that, just like the boundaries that we were talking about earlier. Your job is to be that safe space where your kid can be who they are, and talk through how hard it is, and know that no matter what, you have their back. So a side note to those who might not believe that being transgender is a real thing, You can find gender dysphoria disorder in the American Psychological Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM. It's right there. It's a real thing. Go look it up. Personally, I don't consider being transgender to be a psychological disorder. Um, Homosexuality was also in the DSM up until 1973, when everyone agreed that actually being gay didn't make you crazy or damaged. It just made you fucking gay. So I think we will see a similar shift with transgender diagnosis. Um, In working extensively with trans people for the past five years, I can say without a doubt in my mind that the mental instability that can accompany being trans is brought about by the reactions of others. The fear of operating in this world as a trans person and the constant misunderstanding and persecution that they have to put up with. It's not the, the thing, it's not the experience of being trans that causes mental illness. It's the stress that comes along with it. So one more statistic I'll throw out at you. The average life expectancy for a transgender woman in the United States is 35 years old. And this is due mainly because of the level of violence against trans women in our country. 35. If that doesn't shock you and disturb you to your core, then I urge you to seek help immediately. Okay, so to recap for this person that wrote the email, be gentle but firm with your family members. Recognize that if this is new information for them, you will need to give them some time and probably some resources to get their heads around it. It is a big deal. It is a shift of perception for them, and it's not going to happen overnight. If, after you have given them both time and information, take stock of where they're at and make a call around what level of protection you need to have in place for the well-being of your child if they're not totally on board. Most of the time, relatives come around because they love their other family member more than they connect to an idea against transgender people. But in those rare cases where a family member can't um, 
bring themselves to be supportive if they tell you that no matter what you say, they're going to keep referring to that child with the name and gender that they were assigned at birth, then you will need to tell them they cannot have contact with your child until their attitude shifts. For the very simple fact that you would rather have your child lose an uncle or a grandmother than for you to lose your child by suicide. It's really that important and it's that cut and dried. Um, so if you'd like a fantastic resource for parents or other relatives or trans youth, I would highly recommend uh, Gender Spectrum. You can find them at www.genderspectrum.org. And there's lots of information on there specifically geared towards um, how to handle this with your family members. So I wish you luck. So here's our last email of the week. Uh, this woman says, I think my daughter might be cutting. I found some blood on some toilet paper in the bathroom. Should I confront her? Okay, well, there's a lot of missing information here. You found some blood in the bathroom. She could be cutting. Sure, she could be cutting. She could also have her period, or she could have cut herself shaving, or she could have had a nosebleed, or some other explanation that we're not thinking of. The word you use in your email was confrontation. So that's not really the right approach, but you could ask her about it. Hey, honey, I noticed some blood in the bathroom. Is everything okay? See what her reaction is. If you have other reasons to believe that she's cutting, then you can ask her if she's cutting. So I think there's a lot being assumed here, but I also think it's a good opportunity to talk about cutting in general because it's really common and it's usually not connected to any kind of suicidal ideation. But it's always a good idea to ask those questions to rule it out. And I talked about that in a previous podcast that you can check out. Um, so absolutely, if you find out somebody is cutting, see what the deal is and assess for suicidality. But if that's not the issue, then, and most of the time, like I said, it's generally not. Most of the time, it is about control or release. So if you have a kid or a friend who's cutting, see if you can open a conversation with them about what they're so stressed out about and then help them to find some better coping strategies. Do not get all freaked out about it. That will shut them down. And then you won't know what they're doing, what they're not doing, and you won't be able to help them. Um, often I will ask a client to show me their scars if they're somewhere on their body that can be easily revealed without either of us getting uncomfortable um, this accomplishes a couple of things and I'm not necessarily suggesting that everybody should do this, but I think in a therapeutic setting anyway, it allows me to assess the number and depth of the cuts and can give me some insight into how big a deal that is. Um, the other thing about seeing that is that it gives me an opportunity to show them that I'm not weirded out or disgusted or panicked by this, that I can look at what they've done and I can just be there with that with them. No shaming, no overreacting, and that can go a long way. And they're more likely to talk to me about future episodes of cutting or other self-harming events um, if they know that I can handle that and that I'm not going to blow up about it. Um, so one thing I'll often recommend as an alternative to cutting is holding an ice cube. Um, after a minute or so, it hurts like a motherfucker, so it can help give them that sort of pain control release thing. Um, exercise helps too. If I have a good rapport with a client and they are of an age where it's not super creepy and weird, I'll recommend masturbation, great release, readily available, fantastic distraction from your stress. So 
In this case, I would start with a simple conversation, coming from a concerned but not freaked out place. If they go ballistic and refuse to tell you what the blood was from and run away, then give it some space and then bring it up again. Make sure they know that you are not blaming or shaming. You're just doing your job as their parent to make sure they're okay. If these kinds of conversations are new to your relationship, then use light touches and give them some space. And, you know, it's fine and maybe even preferable to call out that these talks are super fucking weird and awkward, but have them anyway. They are important and they are part of your job as a parent. And your teenager may act all freaked out and like, oh my God, I can't believe blah, blah, blah. But they're probably somewhere inside them. They are appreciating your concern. They're feeling seen, they're feeling heard, and they're feeling cared for. And that can go a long way. So good luck with that. So that brings us to the end of another episode of Therapy for Humans. If you would like to get your questions on the podcast, please email me at rowan at therapyforhumanspodcast.com. You can also call in and leave a voicemail at one 387 2646 And if you would like to see me in person for therapy, you can give me a call at 903-3893. So until next week, take care of yourself take care of each other.